Welcome to episode 32 of Is This Democracy? My name is Thomas Zimmer. I'm a historian at Georgetown University, and I write a newsletter about American politics called Democracy Americana. And I'm Lily Mason. I'm a political scientist at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute. We apologize to our listeners for not coming to you sooner. We had planned on recording this episode last week, but, um, you know, for different reasons, including the fact that I had laryngitis and was literally not able to talk. We we couldn't, uh, so we had to postpone. Um, you can probably still hear it in my voice, which is hopefully not too unpleasant. Anyway, we are here now, and I must say I'm excited about today's topic. Excited in a, um, oh, this is interesting and important, but also this is ugly and terrifying kind of way. We are dedicating the entire episode to the so-called Project 2025 and to a deep dive into the detailed plans that have emerged on the right for what they want, uh, what they want to do immediately upon getting back to power. Sort of a frightening look into a potential near future. That's that's what we're going to do today. Um, before we get into it, a few housekeeping items. Please subscribe to Is This Democracy wherever you get your podcasts. Please support the podcast by leaving us a rating or a review. Um, that really helps us. Ratings only take a few seconds. If you think we deserve the endorsement, then that, that's again, that helps us let the world know that the podcast exists. We're not um, presented by anyone. We don't have any big sponsors. Um, so for this kind of work that we try to do here to be viable for us, we need your help in spreading the word so that we can find an audience that, that makes it worth it. This show is produced by Connor Lynch, and we are grateful to him for making all this good stuff happen. If you have any feedback, you can email us at isthisdemocracypod at gmail.com. And now let's dive deep into Project 2025 and what the right wants from a second Trump presidency. Lily, to start us off, in very broad strokes, what is Project 2025 and why do we need to pay attention to it? Why why does it matter? Project 2025, Presidential, presidential Transition Project, uh, they describe it as building now for a conservative victory through policy, personnel, and training. This is a heritage foundation project. It's extremely well-funded. Uh, it is supposed to be uh, a way for the future Trump administration to hit the ground running uh, on January 20th, 2025, the day that uh, the next president will be sworn in, or somebody, <laughs> if, if it's Trump, the day that he will be sworn in. They, they say it is not enough for conservatives to win elections. If we are going to rescue the country from the grip of the radical left, we need both a governing agenda and the right people in place ready to carry this agenda out on day one of the next conservative administration. So the way that they are doing this is they have four pillars. The first is a policy agenda based on a uh, many, many hundreds of pages document called Mandate for Leadership, uh, which is, you can read it online on their, on their website. It is uh, basically specific proposals for every uh, part of the government, for every issue facing the country, um, how to make them all more consistently conservative. Uh, the second is a personnel database where they will uh, recruit people to participate in the Trump administration from all walks of life to serve in government, whether they have experience or or not. Um, we'll talk about the qualifications that they're asking to get you in there. Um, they also, in, in case they are recruiting people with no experience, the third pillar is a training program well, where they turn this talent pool into effective conservative administrators. Uh, that and they can. This is an online set of online courses. And then the fourth pillar is what they call the 180-day playbook, 
which basically says all of this is going to happen in the first 180 days of the new administration, which I think is the least actually detailed. There's no real indication of how that's going to happen. Um, but they're going to, they say, to bring quick, quick relief to Americans suffering from the left's devastating policies. So this is the, the four pillars of this plan. Um, they are, there are many authors of the, uh, of the mandate. And uh, today we're going to talk you through kind of what, <laughs> What's in there? Because there's too many pages to for each of us to have to read alone. Yeah, I mean, um, so so this is just like you said. It's it's led by or it comes under the leadership of the Heritage Foundation, um, but it's really much of the conservative movement, the conservative machine, and conservative think tanks coming together, right? So they they have basically managed to unite over fifty conservative institutions um, under this banner of Project 2025. They started it in April 2022. Um, so they've been going at it for about almost two years now. They released a first massive report. So we'll, again, we'll, we'll tackle all of this in, in detail um, over the next however long it takes. Um, this this massive 920-page report, they came out, I think, in April 2023. So it's been out for for, for some time. Um, and and it is, again, it's, it's a roadmap for them. It has concrete prescriptions for the transition period. And then the, um, I'm, I'm not sure, I think I think the um, it's a transition period plus the first four months in office. I think that's what these 180 days are referring mm -hmm. to basically from election through so transition from inauguration period. day yeah uh, yeah okay so so um like like right away not wasting not wasting any time and it is really an excellent window into what the right wants and and what might await the country and the world frankly if trumpism returns to power after the 2024 um election this has gotten quite a bit of attention not least because Ten days ago, the New York Times published an interview with the man who is the head of this project, Kevin Roberts, the president of the Heritage Foundation. Um, and that, I think, um, there was quite a bit of a, a, a attention for that because he wasn't exactly holding back, even though he was talking to sort of a mainstream audience uh, um, or sort of a, yeah, a mainstream uh, liberal, maybe even audience. But he he was fairly straightforward in what he wants and how he sees the world um i mean he was openly lauding Viktor orban in hungary uh who he says should be celebrated he was clear about the fact that he wants to fire fifty thousand federal employees um he talked about a he defended his notion that there is a communist plot of communist <laughs> communist sort of inside u.s government chinese communist american communists everywhere he flat out denied that joe biden won the 2020 election um and well he also said that um uh, McCarthy was basically kind of right in the 1950s, um, with <laughs> at least with his, uh, you know, <clears throat> argument, idea, notion. They, they, there was a, this this massive communist conspiracy in 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 the American government. I think a lot of people were looking at this, thinking, "Oh, uh, um, is is that the kind of spirit that is animating these these plans? Maybe we should we should look at that." I don't know what what did you think when you when you I, I know that we. We basically decided to do this episode now because of after the reading. interview. Yeah. yeah, after reading the interview. Um, so I, you know, this is it's really interesting to me because it's it's sort of echoes of of our conversation about um, Rufo, Christopher Rufo. Yeah. Um, in the sense that it's there was a time when I think um, Republicans who had these inclinations uh, kept them to themselves. 
and didn't say them out loud. Yes. And what we're seeing now is, and I think partly as a, I mean, certainly as a reaction to to Trump's, you know, campaigns and administration, um, an emboldening of people to just sort of say the thing that they're thinking yeah. straight out and um, not even apparently get, I mean, partly because there are no consequences, right? You can just say, yeah, I think McCarthy was good. Um, I like Victor Orban. He's a terrific leader. And, uh, and you know, this is how, this is how I think the government should work. We want to dismantle the administrative state. They can just say these things and, and even worse things as we'll get into the report, even to the New York times, the paper, you know, sort of the paper of record, which people had, you know, some fringier people would be worried, you know, previously would, would either not talk to the New York times or would be worried that that coverage would harm them politically or, or professionally. Now the case, it's just not the case. Uh, you can just lay out a, a relatively fascist agenda for the future of this country without any shame or remorse or pushback. Um, and it's just, you know, this is the plan. This is the kind of country we want. Here it is. That's we're telling you. I'll give one more quote from the interview because he also talked about January 6th and Black Lives Matter protests. And, and he, he had this to say, quote, Black Lives, Black Lives Matter riots and wherever someone may be on the motivation of some people in Black Lives Matter, those riots were awful. They were far worse than January 6th. And then he says, I think the far bigger threat than January 6th is what he means. I think the far bigger threat to our republic is the Biden family. So you see that this stuff is, um, I think, very familiar for, to people who spend a lot of time on Fox News and with sort of right-wing media and this type of like the Biden crime family and that sort of thing. It's, it's the kind of the talking points that that you know, Fox News pushes. Um, but it is striking to 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 just say that to the New York Times because again, I think not not it's not striking or surprising that he thinks that. Um, but it is striking that he doesn't sanitize it for sort of a mainstream audience. That he isn't that he doesn't isn't is not concerned about laundering that sort of stuff uh, to make it more acceptable for, for right. sort of mainstream audience. No, flat out. No, it's the Biden family. <laughs> the Biden family. Okay. He does also the the, the other quote that I want to make sure we get yeah. in there is when he just says people will lose their jobs. He's he basically he's saying I want to fire the federal workforce. Um, people will lose their jobs, he says. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, quote, hopefully their lives are able to flourish in spite of that. One thing where he kind of soft pedals, he, he says, um, you know, we're not saying that civil servants are bad people. We, we're not saying, this is a quote, we're not saying we want any harm to come to them. Let me be really clear about that. This is heritage, you know, not some fringe group on the right. We're talking about destroying political power, and they have political power, which... Um, I don't know. We didn't even talk about this, but there was a story today about a, a, some some terrible to a man who murdered his own father and de uh, decapitated him. Oh, uh, and was showing video. There were videos of this all over Twitter, apparently, which is another reason I'm glad I'm not really there anymore. Um, because his father worked for the federal government. Oh, I mean, <laughs> I, I had not. I've not seen this. His, um, all of his explanations were, you know, like anti-woke. Yeah, oh, yeah. And then, and clearly he had other serious issues, but, but these are the kind of things that, you know, you're, you're vilifying yeah. the entire structure of how our whole government works. These are, these people are, uh, they are the government. I mean, they, this is how we do, this is how we live our lives, the way that we live our lives. And by vilifying them, it's it's really sparking 
Creating sparks where we don't need sparks. And I mean, people, trust us, there is a lot of vilifying going on in this in this report that we're going to be uh, uh, quoting from and sort of diving into and, and diving into the broader Project 2025. I want to set the scene a little bit and maybe provide some sort of initial context because there are several different factions on the right uh, currently preparing plans for a return to power. So Heritage and Project 2025 are not the only ones working on something like this. There are rival factions and there really is quite a bit of rivalry between them. So, but but it's 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 makes sense to so start with heritage. So heritage was founded in 1973. It's part of a wave of new conservative organizations and think tanks um, coming up in sort of the, the 70s. And it was all part of this idea of building a machinery to counter what the right perceived as sort of liberal hegemony, um, which they thought was so strong that it even shaped the Nixon administration. So again, it was founded in 1973. That's during the Nixon Nixon's presidency, and conservatives were not happy because they thought Nixon was also far too, you know, too much still part of the liberal orthodoxy, that sort of thing. Um, it's fair to say that it. It has been um, the most influential, most powerful of these conservative think tanks. It is the one that's closest to the power center of the right and the Republican Party. It was for a long time associated uh, and associated itself with Reagan and Reaganism. So this is very much conservative establishment or has been for decades. But it's also gone into a decidedly more Trumpian direction Lately, Um, it, it brought in people from the Trump orbit specifically for Project 2025. Kevin Roberts, the the president of Heritage, defines um, the role Heritage now plays as institutionalizing Trumpism. And he doesn't mean institutionalizing as in taming or containing, but more as in make more efficient, right? That sort of thing. Um, And again, that's that's, that's sort of the context for Project 2025, which again, they started in April 2022. And I think what stands out about them is they have enormous amounts of money, tens of millions of dollars, and it comes with the backing of over 50 conservative or right-wing institutions. If you look at the advisory board, um, I think it, I think they list, they list 54 institutions. It's a who is who of the institutional right. So just some examples of the Alliance Defending Freedom, America First Legal Foundation, Center for Renewing America, Claremont Institute, Hillsdale College, Liberty University, Young America's Foundation, and on and on and on. They're all there, right? So it has really united the right-wing think tank or activist world or sort of the political machine orbit. Um, but again, it's not the only one. And I just want, want to mention that real quick. There is also... Um, the so-called America First Institute um, or Policy Institute. It was founded in 2021 by Trump administration alumni. This is basically all Trump people right from the start. Um, They have their own plans for what Trump should do once he gets back to power. They call it pathway to 2025. Um, And then there is, of course, the Trump campaign itself. And they also are working on plans. They call it the Agenda 47. So it is, just, just to be clear, we get sort of the landscape, right? So this is we are focusing on Project 2025, and we'll talk maybe later a little bit about how maybe these other plans, whether or not they differ from what we're talking about here. But it, there's all sorts of planning going on, and I think the the general thrust of of much of these plans is is very very similar. It's all about finding the right personnel, um, and it's always about expanding presidential power, especially over the executive. And I think it adds up to a, a sort of unprecedented machinery. Although, I mean, maybe to be clear. In and of itself, planning for a transition period and finding people is not, that's not like a right-wing conspiracy, like all incoming administrations no, do, that. Have they, to do that. Yeah. yeah. 
yeah, they vet people, they bring people in, and they make they make plans. But what is very different from 2017, in 2017, Trump world was not ready for this kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. The conservative machine had not endorsed Trumpism yet, or only recently endorsed it. Um, so it's very different from what we saw in 2017. It's also very different, again, in scale and ambition. This is pretty much unprecedented, um, wh- what they're trying to do here. So, And that's why I think it, it, it's really worth diving into this. Well, and, and also the not not just the the kind of scope of this but also the the real intention to dismantle the government from the inside um and and we can talk about the sort of it's a really interesting balance there of being sort of you know taking over government in, or, in yeah. order to dismantle government but it is a unique approach let's just say uh in known history um of of a of a, a plan like this um that really is intentionally meant to to take government apart, not to build it. Yeah, yeah. Um, except for the parts of government they need to weaponize in order to go after right. their enemies, right? So that is, I, I think that is just like you said. There's a, there's a bit of a tension here. Maybe I think it's worth. Um, so we want to again, we want to look at um, what these people want and who these people are. Um, and and it, it's it's worth starting at the top with Kevin Roberts, the president of Heritage. He he he. Uh, took over Heritage in, in 2021. Um, what is your sort of your your sense of like what kind of like who are we looking at? Like where is he coming from? Um, I, I don't know. I, I I looked into it a little bit, but I, I don't know what your sense is like who, who this person is. No, look, tell tell me what you got. Okay, so I mean, okay, so to start with, he holds a PhD in history from the University of Texas at Austin. I don't know. I'll just say this as a historian. It you know. Not not sure if that means anything, but um, prior to ascending to the leadership at Heritage, he was the CEO of something called the Texas Public Policy Foundation. It's a conservative think tank in Austin. They focus, amongst other things, on fighting for the privatization of education, of course, and on making the, quote, moral case for fossil fuels <laughs> <laughs> and, and rejecting the scientific consensus on climate change. And then he also served as the president of the Wyoming Catholic College. And I think that's that's really important. He really comes out of this sort of reactionary religious right um, world. He is a reactionary uh, Catholic, um, a true believer. Um, so that's that's I think is 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 important. I, I want to say one last thing about him because some people may remember this. When the neo fascists under Giorgia Maloney in uh, in Italy came to power in September 2022, among the most enthusiastic voices on the American right was uh, the president of Heritage, Kevin Roberts, who explicitly saw Maloney as uh, a sort of a role model, his immediate reaction to the neo-fascist election was, and, and I'll quote him, this can be a trend. Conservatives everywhere need to define the choice as what it is, us versus them, everyday people versus globalist elites who've shown us they hate us. Um, so this is very much the spirit that animates his work at Heritage, and it's also very much the spirit throughout the report and, and throughout of the, the project 2025, I think, is, is very, that's very clearly sort of his his perspective um, and that, and on the world. And just that quote is just, it's such a definition of the, the populist authoritarian um playbook right this is what you literal us us versus them uh there you know there's actually a fantastic report out um from protect democracy called the authoritarian playbook and people should look at it um but and there are sort of you know seven different ways that you can notice that that these are authoritarians and one of them is this kind of targeting marginalized groups and and encouraging us us versus them type of thinking and it's it's just extremely textbook um authoritarian rhetoric 
Yeah. Um, shall we dive a little bit into this report um, mm -hmm. and, and maybe start with, like, it starts with a note, um, an introductory note by the director of Project 2025, Paul Dance. And again, it also has an extensive foreword by Kevin Roberts that we want to dive into. Just from this note, it's interesting. So anyway, um, they call this report a mandate for leadership. It's important to note that so Heritage has produced these mandates for leadership since 1979, but this latest one is part of the 2025 project. Again, it's 920 pages, and it's a distillation of the ideas and plans that they have come up with. It's also a distillation of how these people see the world and sort of the ideological forces and influences shaping these plans. Um, and I mean, again, it's all grievance, siege mentality, dreams of revenge, uh, and, a, and a whole universe of enemies. And this, again, this sort of this note by director Paul Dance, right off the bat, this is a quote, the long march of cultural Marxism through our institutions has come to pass. The federal government is a behemoth weaponized against American citizens and conservative values with freedom and liberty under siege as never before. And this is what you get here, right? So, so many enemies. They're everywhere. They're in charge of the most powerful institutions and they're out to destroy the country. Um, I mean, th this is sort of the kind of kind of stuff. All right, let's talk about Kevin Roberts's promise to America. That's what he called his forward, his intro to the, the big, big report. Um, Lily, what what stood out to you? Again, it's about ten pages long or so. I, I recommend yeah. everybody go read it. It's really, really worth reading it. Like, what what do you think is is sort of the the aspects that stand out from Heritage President Kevin Roberts uh, giving his promise to America? Yeah. Well, and and we should also note that this is this is the part that he wrote. Um, yes, and then yes. the rest of it is actually written. Each chapter is written by a different author. And so you can just read this 10-page part and you don't have to read all the other chapters. Although if there's certain parts of government you're interested in, it's listed by part of the government. Um and and so he talks about this conservative promise um where uh that is that is launched by the Heritage Foundation and partners. There are 30 chapters of, of sort of this is how we, this is the way we're thinking about it. But he arranges it around four basic points. The first is restore the family as the centerpiece of American life and protect our children. The second is dismantle the administrative state and return self-governance to the American people. Third, defend our nation's sovereignty, borders, and bounty against global threats. And four, secure our God-given individual rights to live freely, what our constitution calls the blessings of liberty. Each of these things um, ha includes, you know, <laughs> uh, unspoken references to many of the kind of cultural things that we're going through and the arguments that we're having about gender and equality and and basically whether whether kids are able to use bathrooms, uh, whether women are able to have control of their bodies, and it's a pretty standard conservative set. But to see it pointed uh, put out this way as so as so clear, I think is. Um, it's actually helpful. <laughs> it's helpful for yeah for us to to get a grasp on it. Yeah, I think I think you said it's standard conservative, but we have to be clear: standard conservative for what conservatism is today, right? Yeah. Because it is, I think, by by sort of the if you go twenty years back, this is pretty pretty openly radical stuff. Um, mm -hmm. He starts with a very very dark assessment of the situation in America today. I'm going to quote from the first page of his foreword, his promise to America. Um, it, it's really worth sort of hearing the sound of this. So again, quote. Our political class has been discredited by wholesale dishonesty and corruption. Look at America under the ruling uh, and cultural elite today. 
Inflation is ravaging family budgets. Drug overdose deaths continue to escalate. And children suffer the toxic normalization of transgenderism with drag queens and pornography invading their school libraries. Overseas, a totalitarian communist dictatorship in Beijing is engaged in a strategic, cultural, and economic cold war against America's interests, values, and people. All while globalist elites in Washington awaken only slowly to that growing threat. Moreover, low-income communities are drowning in addiction and government dependence. Contemporary elites have even repurposed the worst ingredients of 1970s radical chic to build the totalitarian cult known as the Great Awakening. And now, as then, the Republican Party seems to have little understanding about what to do. Most alarming of all, the very moral foundations of our society are in peril. And he goes on to say, conservatives should be confident that we can rescue our kids, reclaim our culture, revive our economy, and defeat the anti-American left at home and abroad. So it's, mm -hmm. I mean, this is really, it's a tale of decline. That's very important, right? There's a decline, a declinist um, narrative of power mm -hmm. and moral and the moral fabric of the nation. And the enemies are on the rise. The enemies are the left, the ruling elite, the global elite, the globalist elites. Um, and it's very much, <laughs> it's very much coming from sort of this feverish mind of a right-wing culture warrior, right? So, so remember, this is supposedly a policy planning document. It's supposed to be like, oh, wonky, cold, rational. Here's what we're going to do, and yet you find these of the the boogeyman of the right-wing culture war, like the Great Awakening, like the, the, mm -hmm. that that stupid nonsense. Um, but this is it, it is it, throughout this report. I mean, again, like what whatever chapter you look at, it could be whatever whatever agency, whatever department, and you'll find these these hardcore right-wing culture war uh, uh, ideas and talking points um, in there because that's really what animates this kind of stuff. Yeah, it's children, culture, values. Right. This is the way that the current conservatives in, in the U.S. really talk about what they want. And ultimately, as we say often, what it describes is, is a, a return to a you know, sort of white Christian patriarchy in the country that as this document is laying out, is giving, you know, not only the plan for how to do it, but also these like extremely um, radical and divisive values that under that underlie the entire thing. So he's giving us the kind of meat of the ideas of it, why, why they're doing this entire thing. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, like the, the first promise, like to, to restore the family, that basically breaks down to, oh, we have to get rid of DEI and we have to get rid of critical race theory. So it's all these, again, it's all the, 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 the culture war crusades that have shaped the right, the right over the past few years. It, that, that's what he means when he says rescue the family. Um, because I mean, it's 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 a he defines pornography as quote manifested today in the omnipresent propagation of transgender <laughs> ideology and sexualization of children. So again, totally in line with sort of the right wing strategy of associating LGBTQ people with pedophilia and, and deviant, dangerous behavior, and that all needs to go, and it all needs to ba be banned and, and ostracized and that sort of thing. Um, where he really goes crazy is when he talks about say second promise you said it was dismantling the administrative state and um in this part i mean every form of expertise all the professionals all the bureaucrats it's all left wing it's all dangerous and and so it's just to give you some examples how that sounds like so he says again these are all quotes um 
the, the danger to America, right? Bureaucrats at the Department of Homeland Security following the lead of a feckless administration or the Border and Immigration Enforcement Agency to help migrants criminally enter our country with, impu with impunity. Bureaucrats at the Department of Education inject racist, anti-American, ahistorical propaganda into America's classrooms. Bureaucrats at the Department of Justice force school districts to undermine girls' sports and parents' rights to satisfy transgender extremists. Woke bureaucrats at the Pentagon because clearly the Pentagon is absolutely <laughs> overrun with woke people. Woke bureaucrats at the Pentagon force troops to attend training seminars about white privilege, and bureaucrats at the State Department infuse U.S. foreign aid programs with woke extremism about intersectionality and abortion. Um, again, this is this is indistinguishable from from the kind of language that you get on the the, the, the right wing media machine. Right, right. Or even, you know, sort of the like fever corners of the internet. Yeah. Um, the, and, and here he, and he, in the, the following section, actually, he talks about how the, how federal spending is the reason for all of the great awakening, the, that, that federal funding is the secret lifeblood of the great awakening, which is the, the villain, um, and he's saying every power center held by the left is funded or supported through the bureaucracy by Congress, colleges and school districts, uh, the administrative state, uh, Washington establishment. He's he's saying all of these places have these evil woke uh, forces within them, and so we need to remove the the funding and power of the state in order to remove the ability of these you know evil left-wing anti-Americans to destroy American culture. And it's, it's remarkable how so he has this all-encompassing theory of how it all is all one thing, right? It's all like there's there's not a distinct problem with government spending um, and a distinct problem with like culture or whatever. It's all one thing. It's the woke elites are everywhere, and and they it, it he rails against especially in um under what he calls promise number three, defend our nation's sovereignty and borders. Um, he rails against progressivism as as the great enemy. Um, there's a lot of talk about Woodrow Wilson and was a Wilson era progressivism as as the great evil, which is which is actually very interesting. Very ironic. It's all about globalist elites, woke elites, and they're all betraying real America. There's a lot of that sort of full populism going on um um again like just to give you a little bit of the sound here um america's corporate and political elites do not believe in the ideals to which our nation is dedicated instead they believe in a kind of 21st century wilsonian order in which the enlightened highly educated managerial elite runs things rather than the humble patriotic working families who make up the majority of what the elites contempt contemptuously call flyover country again full populism it's like very cringe. Um, yeah. This Wilsonian hubris has spread like a cancer through many of America's largest corporations, its public institutions, and its popular culture. Um, those who run our so-called American corporations have bent to the will of the woke agenda. <laughs> Today, nearly every top-tier U.S. university president or Wall Street hedge fund manager has more in common with a socialist European head of state than with the parents at a high school football game in Waco, Texas. I mean... It's totally cringe, right? But it's right. also laughing at it. It's not the right reaction because it, what follows from this is some pretty radical, some some pretty radical stuff. 
Yeah. And he goes into sort of different parts of, of the American kind of economy that he wants to get into. And, 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 he, and after describing all of these things, he says, a casual reader might take the last few pages as surveying a broad array of challenges facing the American people and the next conservative president. Supranational policymaking, border security, globalization, engagement with China, manufacturing, big tech, and Beijing compromised colleges. But really, these are not many issues, but two. One, that China is a totalitarian enemy of the United States, not a strategic partner or fair competitor. And two, that America's elites have betrayed the American people. The solution to all of the above problems is not to tinker with this or that government program to replace this or that bureaucrat. These are problems not of technocratic efficiency, but of national sovereignty and constitutional government governance. We solve them not by trimming and reshaping the leaves, but by ripping out the trees, root and branch. Yeah, you can see how, <laughs> how radical the prescription is, right? So he, he basically, all this faux populism, woke enemy stuff, is giving he's giving himself permission for the radical response to to that, right? Um, well, and, and almost, a, you know, so remember the, the Grover Norquist, uh, you know, we, we're going to shrink government to the size where we can drown it in a bathtub. Uh, this is like that, but on a million steroids, right? It's This is saying that government should be ripped out root and branch that the that because we're fighting China and we're fighting our own elites uh, the only way to deal with this is you can't just try to fix things you can't make incremental changes um, we need to start over basically I, I I already mentioned this of a weird obsession with Wilson and Wilsonian progressivism um, that is interesting just just briefly on what that is because it is it is <laughs> Very indicative of how the right sort of thinks about American history and America today. Um, so in his fourth promise, um, secure our God-given individual right to enjoy the blessings of liberty. So he presents sort of a, an extreme version of American exceptionalism. America is um, sort of religion and free enterprise. That's what generates freedom and prosperity. And the enemies throughout history are fascism, communism, progressivism, wokeism. Because that's really just basically one enemy for him, right? So mm -hmm. again, quote, the promise of socialism Communism, Marxism, progressivism, fascism, whatever name it chooses, is simple. Government control of the economy can ensure equal outcomes for all people. So, I mean, look, on a substantive level, this is an insane sentence, right? A complete nonsense. Communism, Marxism, progressivism, fascism, all just the same thing, all synonymous, all just socialism. That's nonsense, right? But it is really interesting because it is really a major strand on the intellectual tradition on the right, and, and one of one that has now fully become hegemonic, I think, is is exactly this. So this it's very similar and very reminiscent to the thinking that dominates the reactionary intellectual sphere today, like the Claremont Institute types. They will tell you exactly this. Remember Trump's 1776 commission and the report they presented on American history? That's exactly the same story. The central idea is America is good because the framers based the country on certain natural rights and timeless laws of nature, right? So they enshrined these eternal laws and morals into the country's uh, founding documents. And, and that manifests in sort of free enterprise and small government and Christian morals and that sort of thing. And in this interpretation, progressivism is the key enemy because it's a, it's a relativistic project of adapting laws and morals over time. And that alienates America from this timeless essence. Um, and this puts progressivism in the, in the same category as fascism or communism because they're all ideologies that seek to remake man and the world in what 
the right sees as defiance of the natural order or the divinely ordained order through totalitarian government intervention. And again, whatever the name this progressive or socialist or communist or fascist devil takes on, it's all about leveling of hierarchies against the natural order and against, of quote-unquote, real America. And so, again, as, as bizarre and nonsensical this is um, on a sort of analytical level, it is also... 100 percent of the the dominating story on the american right um th that is why it it doesn't make sense to like um try to sort of debunk the idea that oh hitler was a lefty or so right it's it's not it's not a matter of they don't know enough or they there's a misunderstanding it's a matter of a completely ideologically completely different uh view of of, of how history works and and what america is yeah i had a real sense reading this that i was missing something um, right. That there's, there's such a huge focus on China, yeah. um, and communism and tech and TikTok. And there's just, I feel like there's a story that, that we don't know because we're not, we're not consuming that media. Um, and this is true. You know, we, we hear this a lot when, you know, sort of political figures will say something that's directly related to a conspiracy theory that most Americans have never heard of, um, and it, it feels like that's happening here because I, you know, to the extent that I'm aware of a lot of these conspiracy theories, I'm, I, there are so many things in here that don't really connect logically. Um, and, and it, and it does feel like this is, it, it's speaking a different language. It's speaking a language that is, you know, and one of the things that I actually know about is the, um, they, they he attacks Confucius Institutes, which is, <laughs> yes. uh, uh, basically, small groups in universities that study China and have, and often have funding from, from, uh, from China to send students. And, uh, this is, you know, basically what he said is that the, the, um, the universities are a tool of Chinese espionage. TikTok is a tool of Chinese espionage. It's targeting our young teenage girls. There's a lot of conspiracy theory laid into this that it almost requires you to already know a lot of these conspiracy theories, or you're not going to get everything out of it that, that he's actually trying to say. So just to remind our listeners, we're still in this um, uh, forward um, that Kevin Roberts, the, the president of Heritage, wrote for this 920-page report that is sort of a massive part of Project 2025. And, and he brings it to a close. Basically, this is sort of from his conclusion. Um, and, and it really captures the sense of being under siege that animates so much of what is happening on the right. It starts with some rather unhinged ranting about the left. I mean, more unhinged ranting. Um, again, quote, ultimately, the left does not believe that all men are created equal. They think they are special. They don't think any citizen, state, business, church, or charity should be allowed any freedom until they first bend the knee. Again, completely like bend the knee. Jesus, like, come on, man, get a grip. But anyway, but but then, but then it's all about... It's all about how existential the stakes are, how little time there is supposedly left, and why there's only one choice for conservatives, to strike and to strike now and to strike hard. So again, quote, every hour the left directs federal policy and elite institutions, our sovereignty, our constitution, our families, and our freedom are a step closer to disappearing. Conservatives have just two years and one shot to get this right. With enemies at home and abroad, there's no margin for error. 
Time is running short. If we fail, the fight for the very idea of America may be lost. He talks about how there's only a quote, small window of opportunity we have left. And then he says, the next conservative president will enter office on January 20th, 2025 with a simple choice, greatness or failure. And, and then he says, this is our quote, last opportunity to save our republic. Um, this is how he ends this whole thing. I mean, to some extent, this is in line with conservative rhetoric since forever, right? So certainly since uh, the formation of the modern conservative, modern conservatism as a political project in the middle decades of the 20th century, it has always been five minutes to midnight. Um, the Republic mm -hmm. is always about to fall, to be overrun by the lefty hordes and by the socialists. But this also captures the extremely heightened version of that. Uh, sort of general persecution and self-victimization mindset that that serves as a permission structure for really extreme radical measures. And that's because it's all supposedly coming in self-defense against this deadly woke lefty lefty enemy. And it's like, I think this whole this forward, again, it's just 10 pages um or so. Uh, rarely will you get such a comprehensive insight into the state of the right and, and where they are like in, in their mind and, and what animates them today. So I really recommend everybody reading this. Some people might think, all right, okay, so that's ugly, but it isn't it all just rhetoric? Isn't it all just a lot of hot air? And I think we're here to tell you now in the next step, no, they actually have a plan. Um, and they have a clear diagnosis of what supposedly went wrong in the first Trump presidency and why that didn't yield the re result they desire and what they have to do differently the next time around. And maybe that's a good place to go next, Lily. They, they seem to have drawn a very clear lesson from the first Trump presidency, why it didn't work out the way they wanted it to work out and what needs to be different. Right. So, I mean, in, and just to, you know, remind everyone in, in the Trump presidency, we had um, a fully functioning, you know, go federal government, civil servants of the federal government. They're just people doing their jobs. The vast majority of them are not politically um, appointed. They're not even allowed to be political in their in their life, in their public facing lives. And so they all just sort of kept doing their jobs. Um, you know, the transition occurs as they do, and political appointees were swapped out with with Trump appointees to the extent that you know that they were available. And uh, the vast majority of the federal government just kept running along. Uh, that became a problem for Trump when he started wanting to do things that were not uh, allowed. <laughs> and, and so the rest of the, of the system functioning uh, prevented him from having as much power as he wanted to have. And also the, the laws of the United States stopped Trump from being able to have as much power as he wanted to have. Uh, you know, he's, he's telling us even now that, he, right, he wants to have complete immunity. He should be able to murder somebody and, not, and nobody should be able to tell him otherwise. What happened then um, was that Trump was very much slowed down in uh, achieving what, by the end of his presidency, he sort of realized he wanted to have achieved because he really didn't have a plan in the beginning, I don't think. Yeah. I think that there was yeah. just, he didn't expect to win. There was not much of a plan there. Um, everything was kind of thrown together at the last minute. And the transition was a mess. I mean, no, this is, I live in Washington, Washington D.C. I know a lot of um, civil servants who work for the federal government. It was, things were lost. No one knew where things were. People, you know, weren't in the right buildings. There was, you know, first there was nobody coming to help with the transition. And then there was like, like a bunch of people who were like being kind of menacing. Um, 
And so it was, um, it, it was so chaotic that there wasn't an idea of like, what does a Trump presidency look like? What does he want to accomplish in his presidency? And how does he get that done as quickly as possible? And what these documents have done is create a, 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 a path for, first of all, the first day, January 20th, 2025, Trump has an agenda because they wrote it for him. Um, he, you know, they know exactly what they want to achieve with this government and all of these, uh, policy recommendations will clear the pathways so that Trump can do basically whatever he wants to do without any kind of, um, opposition or, or resistance. And, uh, they also do a lot of things that Heritage has just wanted to do for a long time, like yeah. removing the regulatory state and taking, you know, uh, ultimately under like destroying the Department of Education and doing things that we've heard talk about but but haven't been um, considered any kind of you know actual realistic um, policy plan. And and here they really lay out for every single part of government what the plan is. What do we do to make sure that we have a, like a, a smoothly running conservative government machine um, that does exactly what we want it to do and nobody can tell us otherwise? There was a dictum um, early on in the uh, the first Trump presidency. Uh, people said this a lot. Um, basically, it was malevolence hampered by incompetence, right? So, and I think, um, and I think the right these heritage people, the, the everyone on the right, um, sort of engaged in the in these planning efforts. They basically agree with this, right? They, they basically say, no, it's it's true. We we weren't ready. We didn't have any plans. Um, we didn't have the right people in place, and we were sabotaged by the people we had to bring in because we didn't have our own people. So you re, like, yeah, our listeners will remember this whole talk about the adults in the room, like John Kelly as White House Chief of Staff, Jim Mattis as Secretary of Defense, and um, and again, and all these of and all these like thousands of people already in place in 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 the executive in 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 government in in all these agencies and and so this time the the lesson that they have drawn from this is that they need to be a again just like you said they need to have their plans ready that's one thing but also it needs to be they need to get rid of all the elements that slowed them down and sabotage them in the first presidency and that means for them that means of structurally systemically they need to vastly expand presidential power and basically remove all barriers of presidential power and, and authority over the executive uh, branch. Um, and then on the level of people, on the level of personnel, they need to they want to purge anyone who's not all in on the Trumpian project and replace them with loyalists and, and sort of make sure they have the type of ideological conformism that they need. Again, this isn't this is not a bunch of like amateur idiots sitting around the table. Like they they looked at what what happened there in 2016-17, and I think that makes sense what they what they diagnose here is. Is, is I think fairly convincing um, and fairly scary that they that they got their their finger on this. Um, all of this, by the way, is is to be flanked by a weaponization of the Department of Justice. That's a that's sort of a throughout all of the planning is. Yeah, and, and what we really need to get rid of is all these lawyers telling us we can't do this for like legal reasons. And mm -hmm. what they want is just people giving them the legal rationale for whatever Trump wants to do and be on board with uh, with whatever goes on. Um, all right, so let's look a little bit at what that would look like in practice. How do they want to sort of make good on their conservative promise? Again, the first big focus of Project 2025 is this sort of authoritarian takeover of the executive and the dismantling of government and the administrative state. Um, 
I will just mention that underlying all of this is kind of a legal theory of uh, the so-called unitary executive theory, which basically in short means that there's supposedly zero limits on presidential power when it comes to the executive. Like the president is basically like a king-like figure uh, with with absolute power over the executive branch. That's kind of underlying this whole thing. Um, not that they really need any sort of proper legal justification. Um, so yeah, so let's dive in a little bit into sort of the concrete policy plans and prescriptions and how that breaks down sort of department by department. Um, again, it's spelled out in this document, this uh, um, this what they titled Mandate for Leadership, a Conservative Promise, 920 pages. Um, it is organized by five sections, um, taking the reins of government, the common defense, the general welfare, the economy, and independent regulatory agencies. And then in each section, it is chapters on specific departments and agencies and what they want to do with them. I think, Lily, we both dove into, mm-hmm. uh, a few, like, again, <laughs> like uh, full disclosure, we did not, can you believe it, uh, read every one of those 920 pages. Yeah. And like, we're not going to go through everything here, but we'll touch on a few, again, to give you a, a sense of what that really concretely breaks down to where should we start um so i i I mean i i was really interested in what they were doing with um both department of defense and department of homeland security yeah uh and uh because one of the things that they've been really it's 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 pretty ironic actually they've been complaining a lot about how um the military can't do its job anymore because of all this wokeness that's happening in the military which um, I think generally means um, allowing transgender uh, service people and also, um, you know, honoring the kind of the the rules of the military that, you know, everyone is, it's an entire meritocracy, right? It doesn't really depend on on who you are or who you know. It's if, if you're in the military, then you work your way up and um, and it's a pretty diverse place. Uh, women are allowed to be there, but also, um, you know, there's a lot of racial diversity within the military, huge amount of racial diversity in the military. Yeah. Um, and then, and so th- what they, what they're suggesting is actually what we need to do. And this is for specifically the department of defense that, uh, they say we need to eliminate politicization, eliminate politicization, reestablish trust and accountability and restore faith to the force. So strengthen protection for chaplains to carry out their ministry, which means uh, basically like uh, Christian, we can have, we can have uh, Christian chaplains in the, in, as part of our uh, DOD, but I'm guessing not other faith. Uh, I'm not sure about that one, but also reinstate service members who were discharged for not getting COVID vaccines. Uh, the eliminate quote Marxist indoctrination and divisive yes. critical race theory programs and abolish newly established diversity, equity, and inclusion offices and staff. Uh, re- uh, restrict the use of social media. Um, uh, audit, audit the course offerings at military academies. Audit the course offerings at mi- military academies to remove re- Marxist indoctrination. Eliminate tenure for academic professionals and apply the same rules to instructors that are applied to other DoD con- contracting personnel. So, um, obviously, reverse policies that allow transgender individuals to serve in the military. So these are just you know some of the things that they want to make sure the military is not doing, which is actually going to require a lot of intervention in the military. Right. Yeah. This. It it would actually create much more turnover in the military and much more chaos in the military. And this is for both DOD and Department of Homeland Security. They want to they want to go in there and make sure that nobody is talking about race or gender uh, 
is is living out their racial or or their gender identity in any way that's not the the you know tradition the traditional Christian way of thinking about things. It's actually quite a politicizing document. Oh yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Politicizing the military, it's 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 taking politics and injecting it directly into uh, our armed forces and how they're allowed to operate. And I mean, again, this is throughout everything they say here. What they really don't believe in is any kind of independence or autonomy of any of these institutions. Like uh, they're specifically, and they're very explicit about this: no more independence for the Department of Justice. Um, that's that's out the window. Um, on in the DOJ section. It's actually, again, it's it's kind of funny if if it weren't so real. Um, they talk about uh, the, uh, why the people don't trust the DOJ anymore, and why don't they don't trust the FBI anymore? And their answer is, "quote The Federal Bureau of Investigation, knowing that claims of collusion with Russia were false, uh, collaborated with dem- democratic operatives to inject the story into the 2016 election for strategic media leaks, falsified Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act warrant applications, and lied to Congress. Personnel within the FBI engaged." in a campaign to convince social media companies and the media generally that the story about the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop was the result of a Russian misinformation campaign while the FBI had possession of the laptop the entire time and could have clarified the authenticity of the source. Uh, And then also the FBI supposedly didn't do enough against, quote, radical agents of the left like Antifa and threatened anyone not complying with the, quote, liberal agenda. I mean, this is, again, very specific. Pure, (laughs) and pure culture war. Like, if you're not if you're not part of that sort of um, right-wing culture war pipeline, like what is Hunter Biden's no laptop? Sense. Like what is that all about? <laughs> um, but um, again, like just remember, this is not some Fox News talking head segment, right? This mm-hmm. is supposed to, we're now in the absolute weeds of this 920-page report where they're going department by department, here's what we're going to do. And it's <laughs> about Hunter Biden's laptop. Nuts. <laughs> right, right. Um, the other, the other thing that I forgot to mention about the DOD uh, section is that they um, they really are worried about recruitment numbers, and so yeah. they want to establish um, that every student at a public high school in the entire country has to take the admission the the military admissions exam, uh, just in case they might be you know really qualified, and we can just bring them in there. We can just uh, take all of our high school students that are in public education and make sure that they're available. Um, the I, I do want to note that the the Department of Education segment is uh, sort of similarly ridiculous. It literally starts with federal education policy should be limited. And ultimately the federal department of education should be eliminated. <laughs> That's just the first sentence. What did we do with the department of education? Probably eliminate it. Out. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they also, uh, this, this chapter also uh, complains about, this is a new word for me, uh, woke diversocrats. Oh, wow. Yeah. I hadn't heard that one before. Um, and a de facto monopoly enforced by the federal accreditation cartel. So that's how universe, colleges and universities are accredited. Federal post-secondary education policy should prepare students for jobs in the dynamic economy, nurture institutional diversity, and expose schools to greater market forces. Of course, mm. this is all um, uh, the the normal the normal uh, conservative getting rid of the Department of Education thing. But I just I like the fact that the first sentence is that we shouldn't have it. <laughs> um, some of the stuff is exactly what you would expect. I mean, it, it will not surprise anyone that in the section on the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, they're like, you know, EPA, we're going to make it into what they call a conservative EPA. And that basically means that's an EPA that doesn't do EPA shit, right? That's sort of the idea. So complete deregulation. Um, and also, I, I will just say this. Um, m- m- 
my wife who works on this kind of in these issues she works for a sort of climate a think tank that is sort of works on climate change related issues her phd is on sort of anti-environmentalism in in the united states since the 1970s so she really looked at the entire report um for anything uh on the uh, inflation reduction act and and what they want to do with that and and what is striking is that like throughout the report, not just in the EPA section, everywhere they have gone, they have with, with sort of surgical precision identified every sort of every avenue to turn the clock back and and sort of undo everything the IRA has done. Like they they really sort of again, these are not. I know we're laughing at this kind of stuff, but these are not idiots, right? They they understand government, right? They this is not sort of the the clown crew that came in in 2016 with Trump. These people understand government enough. So that, that they were able to sort of identify, here's what we can do to undo the IRA and and and, and its effect and, and that sort of thing. Um, like really scary to me was the uh, what they what what's in the Department of Health and Human Services section. Um, so on the one hand, again, it's like oh we're getting rid of the CDC and all the regulations and that kind of stuff. But then at the same time, it's about vastly expanding the surveillance of women through tech. Right. So um, what they want to do is what they call surveilling abortion tourism. Right. Um, and the idea here is that the government needs to know about every abortion, where, when, why, who they want to centrally collect that information via, again, apps and all that kind of stuff. And it's like this sort of again, this it's this weird mixture of we're dismantling this and we're deregulating. But at the same time, the parts of the government that we need to weaponize in order to impose our vision of what uh, what America is that part we're going to just expand into this sort of quasi-totalitarian uh, machine. And it's like a really scary mixture. Um, so n- no more regulations of like businesses wanting to poison our water, but like absolute total surveillance of women so that they can't do, quote, abortion tourism, right? That's sort of the, the, the vision here. Um, that's, that's <laughs> I mean, the, let's see, I'll just go to, um, I, I I looked at the uh, uh, Federal Elections Commission um, oh. uh, chapter, and one thing that really stood out to me was that there's a lot of talk about the First Amendment, um, and and I think that the reason that they were focused on the First Amendment in the Federal Elections uh, section is because they say that um, you we the the commissioners must um, enforce the laws in a fair, nonpartisan, objective manner, but also in a way that protects the First Amendment rights of the public, political parties, and candidates to fully participate in the political process. Oh, and the president has the same duty to ensure that the Department of Justice enforces the law in a similar manner. So Federal Elections Commission and the Department of Justice making sure that we, that people who are speaking about politics are able to do so unimpeded. There's part of this, I think, First Amendment stuff, it, that rhetoric ha- is is echoing um, the the anti big tech um, free speech censorship um, argument. I think I think that's what it's about. Yeah. And uh, and basically saying we should be able to put misinformation. Um, you know, Donald Trump should be able to say whatever he wants to say about politics, and the and the apps and the social media networks shouldn't be able to prevent misinformation from being spread around the internet. And there's you know already currently an, an attack going on on misinformation researchers uh, at a few universities that receive public funding. Uh, so it's it's interesting to me that the elections section really did seem to be worried about whether or not we can 
we can misinform. <laughs> we should all be able to say exactly what we want to say, and that needs to be enforced yeah. by the Department of Justice as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, the last section that I I uh, also want to highlight is the Department of Labor Labor part, which is basically a, a like a a full on assault on anything that's diversity. The first thing that's listed under needed reforms is quote reverse the DEI revolution in labor policy. So like already you can like this is, <laughs> I mean we did we did our long like a proper episode on what this anti DEI crusade is actually all about, and this is this is exactly that right. So. Um, Again, it's it's all about eliminate ra- eliminate racial classification and critical race theory trainings. Like, like okay, um, and then it's various sort of anti LGBTQ people. So it says the president should quote rescind regulations prohibiting discriminations on the basis of sexual orientation, gender identity, transgender status, and sex characteristics. So I want to say this again: rescind regulations prohibiting that discrimination, right? The president should direct agencies to rescind regulations interpreting sex discrimination provisions as prohibiting discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, gender identity, transgender status, sex characteristics, etc. And and he should direct agencies to refocus enforcement of sex discrimination laws. The president should direct agencies to focus their enforcement of sex discrimination laws on the biological binary meaning of sex. So very clearly, right? Like use all this to... Out is all this diversity stuff. In is we are imposing our vision of of what what is true. Like there's a there's man and there's woman and that's it and all this other nonsense. Go away. None of this is necessarily like surprising, I guess. But it is pretty again in a, this kind of to read it in this kind of document. I I found was was pretty shocking. Did you have another one or shall we just? No, I think, I think yeah. one of the other more shocking parts of all of them is the second is the second part of the project, which is the personnel. Yes, absolutely. Changes. Yeah, let's let's go to that one because again, this was the big the first the first big strand of this whole uh, project twenty twenty five, which is again expand presidential power, take control of the executive, weaponize some part of the executive while dismantling other parts. Right, and now the second pillar of this, or the second big strand of this, closely re- related, of course, and and underlying all of this in in many ways is what you might call the great purge right so focus on people and personnel um so 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 what is the what is the idea here what what are they what are they proposing here and what are they not just proposing this is something where like so far we've talked about plans they want to implement once they get back to power but this on the second part they're already acting they're already doing stuff so they right they want and they want to they've identified 50,000 um personnel that they want to get rid of and then replace with um, loyal individuals. Um, and so the one way to do that is that they have uh, an application site on the on the website yep. uh, that you have to fill out. If you're interested in joining the administration, you fill out an application that um, includes uh, questions like, you know, first of all, ex- explain your choice of, of philosophy um, name one person, past or present, who has most influenced the development of your political philosophy, and then you know agree or disagree um, with a very long list of issues, including the gender wage gap is the result of prejudice and discrimination. Agree or disagree? Um, the president should be able to advance his or her agenda through the bureaucracy without hindrance from unelected federal officials. You have to believe that. Um, Federal government should recognize only two unchanging sexes, male and female, as a matter of policy. Agree or disagree? And it's a, it's a, it's it, that's basically it. It you also have to link to your social media profiles. So 
so an ideological test, uh, tell us who you are inspired by and uh, link to your social media. Uh, Axios did an, did a piece on this um, where uh, they, uh, first of all, they published the questionnaire um, yeah. and, and then they talked to an alumnus of, the, of, the, of Trump's White House who explained that they're designed to test the sincerity of someone's MAGA credentials and determine, quote, when you got red-pilled or became a true believer. This is the quote from this person. They want to see that you're listening to Tucker and not pointing to the Reagan revolution or any George W. Bush stuff. So not only making sure that we have Republicans in these positions, but that we have Trump Republicans right. and not those old establishment Republicans who uh, are still trying to, you know, administer elections in the same in the same way that we did and believe the 2020 election wasn't stolen. So far, apparently they have um, well, I think as of December, I saw that they had 5,000 applications, yeah. um, again, to fill 50,000 potential spots. So not a huge, not actually a very huge number, but, um, but right. So this is, this is the way to solve the problem of, of clearing out the government. It's to make sure that the people who are left there are people who are going to unquestionably do what, what Trump wants them to do this thing the presidential personnel database and, and just to be clear like wh where these because you said like this this number of 50,000 people where that comes from so first on one level there is all the political positions that every incoming administration gets to fill right so there there there's about 4,000 of those I think across mm -hmm. the executive across the agencies across government 4,000 4, political, political political appointments yes exactly political appointments right so okay and of course those positions they want to fill with loyalists who are ideological where they need to be and loyal to Trump. Okay, but everyone right. does that. Yes, but then they want to go much further than that, be beyond just the political appointments and purge the ranks of the civil service and sort of federal em employees. And they want to do that by implementing what, what is called Schedule F. Um, I think that's probably a term that a lot of our listeners have seen or read about or he heard people talk about this. So what this is, it basically, it was a presidential executive order, right? Um, it, it was an executive order in late 2020, um, uh, so last weeks of the Trump administration, which is why it couldn't really, it, it didn't have much of an impact. And it was then rescinded by Biden right away. But what it does is it converts tens of thousands of career civil service positions into political appointments. So basically anyone in a policy adjacent position or policy advisory role would be uh, uh, sort of converted into a political appointment. And that means the civil service protections, job protections are gone, right? Because um, usually these people are not, you can't fire them just like that. They're supposed to be independent. They're supposed to be not like, you know, um, it, it's supposed to be a, a bulwark against like a, an administration coming in and just 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 replacing everyone with, with their own people. But they want to make it so that they can fire these people, again, by converting them into political appointments. And so they, they, they would um, use Schedule F to replace all independent experts and bureaucrats and officials with loyalists. Again, building on what they already very, very late in the first Trump uh, presidency tried to do, but but didn't have much of an impact because it because it came too late. And, and now they're, they're all in on this, right? Very explicitly, oh, absolutely, we are doing Schedule F. And that would amount to, it's unclear what exact number this would amount to, at least 20,000, maybe up to 50,000. Um, and that's where that number comes from. That they're saying, look, we need to have fifty thousand people ready to swoop into those positions um, that we are clearing because we're purging everyone who is not with us. 
And and I, I want to note here that polit- there is a ton of data, empirical evidence from political science that when you have political appointees instead of career civic officials in running government, the outcomes are much, much worse. And and uh, Don Moynihan actually has a great piece from December yes. um, in Brookings about what happens uh, when you replace career civil servants with political appointees and basically summarizes a huge amount of, of, of literature that I'll just summarize here very briefly. Um, when you have a government run by political appointees instead of civil servants, there's higher corruption in the government. There's lower job performance of the people who are working. Uh, government has less capacity to do things. Their government is more inefficient. There is less accountability for the people running the government. There's less power to check the president, so less checks and balances, and Congress itself becomes less responsive. So it makes government worse, substantially worse. And when we look at other countries and even in historically looking at the United States, there's a lot of evidence, um, overwhelming evidence, I would say, that replacing civil servants with with political uh, appointees actually harms government. It harms the quality of government and it makes it easier for it to be corrupted and it makes it harder for it to work. Uh, by the way, we're putting these pieces, Don Moynihan has been on this for literally yeah. years. Um, um, so <clears throat> on Schedule F and what they want to do there and, and all this, so we're, we're putting this in the, in the show notes, links to these this stuff in the, in the show notes. Um, one specific effort in within this broader context of purging people they don't like and bringing in their own loyalists is the focus on lawyers um and and this some pretty crazy stuff like um apparently trump had a falling out with the federalist society uh, and with leonard leo specifically who for a long time was sort of the head of the federalist society federalist society is is one of those conservatives of legal think tank machine institutions founded in the early 1980s um, that is basically providing sort of a pipeline of uh, properly conservative, properly right-wing lawyers and justices and like um, like, uh, um, judges. This is one of the big things for Trump in 2016. Was when he when he pledged he would he would only choose uh, for a uh, a Supreme Court nominees people that the Federalist Society uh, uh, recommended to him. So anyway, so these are not like oh squishy centrists or moderates or whatever, right? If if they if they come recommended by the Federalist Society, they're proper proper like cons- like really really conservative people. But Trump was really frustrated with what he thought were like too soft and too these these Federalist uh, society types, uh, like lawyers around him in the White House, in the in the administration, in 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 government, um, they were too soft for him. Too many qualms about just doing and justifying whatever Trump wants to do. So he's like apparently berated Leonard Leo about this at at Mar-a-Lago, where apparently Leonard Leo had a dinner or something uh so now they don't talk to each other anymore but what that means is that they're now looking for lawyers that are even like significantly to the right of these federalist society types and that is some scary stuff that that is some, that is really scary stuff um so that is the kind of again loyalist conformist um that they're looking for <laughs> we should do a whole other episode on uh sort of jurisprudence in in the case of of trump himself but Right. Once you have this government that's uh, stocked with with the people that you want it to be stocked with, you are um, basically allowing 
incompetence to take the place of of um, skill and knowledge and expert expertise. And in fact, the word expert comes up a lot yeah. in the Project Twenty Twenty Five report as in quote in scare quotes um, because they they're they're really really planning on they don't want experts to be in government. They don't want government to rely on experts. And uh, and so removing experts is actually a um, that that for them that actually makes things easier. So I think we're probably um, at the point where we want to maybe give some some general assessment and maybe some 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 additional sort of context. What people should where where people should put this? What we've just outlined, um, like how important are these plans really? What's what's actually going to happen? Um, and I, I want to say so. What they're envisioning is a complete transformation of American government, like transforming it into something that is A, much worse, much less efficient, much less competent, but also B, serves as uh, basically two purposes. It's an, it, it serves for autocratic revenge and it serves for sort of imposing an authoritarian reactionary vision on the country. I don't think what we're saying is, oh, when Trump becomes president, this is exactly what will happen. Reality will be a little more complicated than that, right? So, but I think this project 2025 stuff matters greatly nonetheless for for several reasons the first one to, to me is is that it's it's indicative of how the cons- how the conservative movement the conservative power center is fully in on trump again this is heritage right this is not some crazy out there fringy maga something something no i mean um again this is for decades now has been the most important most influential conservative think tank and I mean, interestingly, these plans are not, they say they're not exclusively for Trump, right? They say they're mm-hmm. forever, whoever is the next conservative president, right? And they have talked to DeSantis before he dropped out, and they've talked to uh, Nikki Haley. And in and some Robert, way- Robert F. Kennedy and <laughs> Joe Manchin. Yes, yes. Um, in some way, Trump is actually not the ideal vessel for this, right? Because, I mean, he's very, he's erratic, and he's lazy, and he's volatile, and he's certainly not reading policy proposals. But in another way, Trump is especially suited for this kind of project and program because it is so extreme and so radical and animated by this spirit of, of vengefulness and, and grievance and, and, and like no norms, no restraint, no, for, no forbearance. And that's exactly why I think um, they're all united behind Trump in the first place because they saw Trump as someone who would have no qualms um, going all in on a project like this, even though I think they, they don't have any illusions that this Trump is not the kind of guy who sits in his bed at late at night and reads these policy proposals. But that's not, they're like, oh, no, no, we'll bring you the policy proposals. Mm-hmm. We just need you to take the gloves off and go all in. And so in that way, I think Trump is the perfect vessel for this. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, it is, it's sort of a, a, a coming together of the the more extreme edge of what the Republican Party used to be um, and the brute force of Trump, um, yeah. and, and the lack of really the lack of, um, shame or concern. Um, you know, this is, this is this party that we're seeing right now in certainly, you know, in the house is, is one that's not really interested in governing. Um, it's not interested in making government work to help people to yeah. keep America running smoothly. It's instead, it's a, it's a tool for, um, at this point it looks like oppression and re- as you said, revenge, um, and and this is you know, not all of this can get done. Like we said, this is the currently they have five thousand applicants. Uh, they have said that they will take people who are un, unqualified and then train them. 
But it is, there's this tension also. How do you get people to come work for the federal government who you've already told that the federal government is evil? And maybe that won't be a problem. Maybe they'll be able to do that. But it but it seems like a stretch to say, I've already told you that the government is evil. Why don't you come uh, administer uh, you know, health and human services? Mm-hmm. I'm a little skeptical of them getting these this personnel set up. I'm not sure there are enough people who actually want to do this. But but you know, what we saw during the first Trump administration was a combination of chaos and and incompetence yeah. and um and this, you know, th- this would have probably more direction to it, um, but the direction wouldn't be necessarily coming from Trump. He would just be free to do whatever it is that he wants while this agenda is is enacted. So this this tension that uh, you've alluded this right from the start is is really interesting to me between dismantling the quote unquote deep state and versus weaponizing the state. Right, there is a tension here, and and it is a it is a I think an interesting tension. On the on the right, more broadly, that is sort of captured here, because there is, if you look at sort of the conservative legal movement um, and sort of the more libertarian strand of the right, they're all about getting rid of the regulatory state, right, and the administrative state, and they and of modern government in general, like turn it turn the clock back to pre New Deal, basically. But then there is the more Trumpist plan to weaponize and mobilize the coercive powers of the state to impose this sort of reactionary vision on on society. And I think again that this there is a much broader realignment happening on the right. Um, again, the right has always been. The modern conservative political project, um, as it emerged in sort of the middle of the 20th century, was in many way in many ways defined by this sort of alliance between more traditionalist forces and then the more libertarian strands. And they, and they they found each other because they were both so anti-liberal, right? And like they called it fight against communism, but there was like anti-left, anti-liberal against any sort of attempt at leveling hierarchies of wealth and race and gender and religion. But increasingly, over the past few years, the traditionalist wing is kind of not happy with this alliance anymore because they believe they have not gotten what this bargain promised. Like in their, in their interpretation, there has been a lot of small government and deregulation and free market and all that. But these sort of destructive forces of you know leftism and wokeism and liberalism were allowed to advance anyway. So you have these sort of frustrated reactionary traditionalists, and I, I would put Kevin Roberts certainly in that camp uh, more than in the other camp. Um, and they, 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 they started sort of you know finding each other. Like they, some of them call each other the national conservatives, for instance, right? And and what they want is basically they want to embrace nationalism and 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 also sort of they have an unabashed commitment to mobilizing state power in order to impose whatever they see as the natural order or the divinely ordained order on the entire country. Right, so there's, these are two different factions, and there is there's real tension here between them. Um, ultimately, I don't think it's it's going to stop them. It's not you know because what you're going to settle on is basically well, we'll dismantle everything we don't like while at the same time mobilizing everything we need to go after our enemies. I think that is sort of that's what diving into this report and into what Kevin Roberts has said, has really sort of hammered home for me. So much of this is defined by anti-left grievance. They hate the same groups of people. That's the fuel. That's the glue, right? Um, and I think they're very they're very much aware that they don't 
all like each other all that much, but they are, they share this feeling of being under siege from these sort of radical, progressive, and woke, and extremist, and un-American forces. And that is the general thrust across the right, regardless of faction, and regardless of like, are you more on the libertarian strand or more on the sort of traditionalist strand? That's this feeling of conservatism is no longer enough. We can't do all this like, like you know, uh, standard conservatism anymore. What we now need is not conservatism, but a counter-revolution, right? That sort of language is everywhere. That thinking is everywhere. And I think that will ultimately hold this together at least enough so that it will absolutely have an impact. But also, it's extremely unpopular. Yeah. Um, right? This is ultimately, and, and you know, what they're doing right now is... Uh, effectively like living out what they, what this part of the Republican party was promising they would do. And what we saw with something like Dobbs is that it's great for mobilizing people before you do it, but after you do it, people realize it really sucks and we don't want to live our lives that way. And so, you know, every, every piece of progress that they make is actually turning other people off and making them realize, well, I don't really want to live like that. I don't want to live in a police state. I don't want to have my, you know, women don't want their travel to be monitored constantly to make sure that they're not pregnant. Um, the, you know, the, the, the ways that they're talking about uh, institutionalizing this really Christian nationalist type of uh, society um, is not the, it's not what most Americans want or like. And, and so, you know, Part of I think part of why we read this thing was to make it clear that there's you know most of this stuff is is it's awful but also you know people don't like it and they won't like it and it's the type of thing that we should be paying attention to when we're yeah. voting and when we're participating in politics because a lot of this often feels like we're looking at polls and we feel hopeless and everything is you know we don't know what to do and the Democratic Party seems like it's you know, fighting, whatever. And then the polling looks bad. And, but like all of that ignores the fact that we all have agency in politics, just like Mike Podhorser said when we had him on. And, and this is, you know, this is a, this is a deeply unpopular agenda. The vast majority of us don't want it. And, uh, and, you know, given, given a, a, an actual choice on these particular parts of it, I think most Americans would reject it. So um, that's, I think, part of the bright, bright side of it for me. Yeah. Although that, again, that also comes with scary implications because you know who's really aware of how unpopular this is? The right, right? They understand this. And that's what, to me, makes it so scary when, I mean, Trump is talking all the time about, oh, next time we're going to do Insurrection Act and then we're going to deploy troops and send them into these Mm -hmm. blue cities and then we're going to restore order, by which he means suppress protest. Um, And, like, again, that's Trump and that's because he wants to, like, have his... uh, personal vendetta and vengeance and, and all that kind of stuff. But um I mean it's very much it's very much in line with the general thrust of these plans also, right? Again, like Trump doesn't read these plans, but the general what is terrifying is that the overall thrust seems very, very compatible with tr- w- between Trump's like the crazy stuff that he promises every night, like oh, I'll go after your enemies and round up millions of immigrants in detention camps and then re- deport them and then send troops into blue cities. Um, and then again, what what these uh, the, what the conservative machine is 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 producing as as plans? Um, it's all fueled by this sense of being besieged, of being victimized by grievance. It's all about punishing enemies. It's all about vastly expanding power to impose this 
extremely unpopular vision against uh, um, the will of the majority. That's what makes this so scary. And I think, like again, I, who knows what's actually going to happen, but the circumstances are going to be much more in Trump's favor compared to 2016-17, at least in terms of like on the right, right? I mean, let's not forget how much the GOP has radicalized to the right mm-hmm. since 2016, yeah. right? They're now fully dominated by Trumpism. Even people like Liz Cheney and Mitt Romney, who at the very least felt like, okay, one line we're not crossing is engaging in violent insurrection. They're out, right? There's now a reactionary supermajority on the Supreme Court. Let's not forget that that was not the case during the first Trump turn. It, it only became a 6-3 majority in like towards the very end when Amy Coney Barrett ascended as a replacement for, for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And again, whatever resistance and skepticism there still might be among some Republicans, they all face an enormous level of violent threat. Um, and, and they all understand that if we go against Trump and Trumpism in any way, well, then you, know, you, you better do what Mitt Romney does and pay thousands and thousands of dollars every day to protect your family against these, these threats, right? So all of this stuff was not in place in 2016, 2017, and that will be in place the next time around. So that, that stuff is... <laughs> Again, like I, it's it makes no matter to like sit there and then like do oh it's it's we're all doomed and that makes no sense. Mm-hmm. But let's be clear, th- there is an there's reason to be concerned about this kind of stuff. Right, and a lot of the things that they're proposing here are methods by which they can have control over a government that the majority doesn't approve of. Yes. All right. Um, shall we leave it at that? Any last words on Project Twenty Twenty Five? The people behind it. I think. I think we may have said enough for now. Um, yeah. All right. That's that's all we have to say on this. Again, for now, I'm 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 certain we're going to have to return to some of this stuff soon. Um, well, thank you all for taking this deep dive into Project 2025 with us. I hope you. Well, maybe not. Maybe enjoyed is not <laughs> the right word. But maybe you. I, I hope you thought it was worthwhile. Um, and we will talk to you soon. Until then, bye bye. Mm-hmm.